Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. First brand that made an impact on you growing up in a small town in India? Amul. So Amul is a Indian brand of uh, dairy. It's a cooperative. It's probably one of the world's largest milk cooperatives. And the advertising was topical, cultural, changed every week about what was happening in the news out there. And somewhere the combination of creativity with culture, with music, with technology, with newsworthiness is something Amul did brilliantly well when I was five years old. And, and I think the, the rest of life has been trying to, to better what they did and left behind in my, in my mind. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Rupen Desai, the global chief marketing officer at Dole Packaged Foods. You know, the pineapple people. Actually, not anymore. Dole is a world leader in growing, sourcing, distributing, and marketing a wide variety of fruit and healthy snacks. And Dole is one of the oldest brands in the world, its roots going back to 1851 in the kingdom of Hawaii. Rupen grew up in a small town in India, earning both his bachelor's degree and his MBA in India, and then began a long career in, of all things, advertising. After 24 years in advertising and public relations, working in the UK, Thailand, Dubai, and Singapore, Rupen jumped to the client side two years ago at Dole as Global Chief Marketing Officer, which, like, never happens. And yes, just wait, there's a story there. My guest Rupen is a dad of two girls, a gardener, a sailor, a golfer, and is guided by the lessons of Don Quixote. This is my conversation with Rupen Desai. Rupen, welcome to the CMO Podcast, and I have a feeling this is going to be one doozy of a podcast. I want to start with, where are you now, and what time is it for you? Thank you for having me, Jim, first of all. Uh, I'm in wonderful, usually warm, usually sunny Singapore, and it's 11 p.m. at my end. You have probably done worse conference calls than 11 p.m., haven't you? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. It, it was a choice. Look, when, when I decided to do a global role, as well as combined with the choice of continuing to live in Singapore, it was a trade-off that I needed to decide on. And the trade-off was I need to catch my LA team early my morning, which would be afternoon theirs, allow them their beauty sleep, head over to Asia and eventually get Europe back to LA just as they were waking up. I think my worst time for a conference call was I was in I worked all over the world as you have. It was I was in Cincinnati at the time. It was 3 a.m. 
That's when the meeting began. And it was a highly contentious meeting. <laughs> it was, As they always are. I, I think it's, it was better to be 3 a.m. than it would have been at 10 in the morning. So anyway, you're, you are a very quotable person. I've discovered that about you. And I want to start with one of your quotes. And here we go. Build your career by connecting the dots of moments where you felt unadulterated joy at work. That's very poetic. I'm going to read it again. Build your career by connecting the dots of moments where you felt unadulterated joy at work. Well, Rupen, tell us about your unadulterated moments of joy at work and how you built your diverse career around them. So, Jim, I'm an accidental marketer, so I did not grow up. This wasn't on the dream list of things I wanted to grow up and do. I didn't join the archetypical Procter & Gamble, Unilever, and dreamt that 25 years later, I would be wearing a ultra-neon jacket in Cannes, uh, or, or likewise. Most of my career choices were either a combination of a mistake or serendipity, or deciding at that particular moment saying, you know what, we're going to give it a shot, and we're going to see how this fares up. And let me, let me, let me start way back in, in college. So like a lot of Indians, my parents had already decided one of two things for me to become, a doctor or an engineer. I chose the latter, became an electrical engineer, realized very early on that I didn't enjoy that at all. And it wasn't giving me the oxygen and the oxygen of the soul. Not knowing what to do, I went into the next logical things that a lot of Indians were drilled at that point in time, which is I should do an MBA. Straight out of college, in campus, you're allowed two jobs, and then you've got to pick one of the two so that the others in line all get a fair chance at it. And the first job of the day was Arthur Anderson, which is Accenture now. Everybody that came to interview me was pick, span, propertize the works, but they were offering me twice the money. That the second interview, which came in, which was Lintas, uh, it was half the money, but the it was an ad agency came, for the for it was an ad, it was an advertising agency, yeah. which is over the years it's it's morphed itself. Uh, into different avatars and is Mullen Lowe now. And they were offering half the money. But they all were wearing denim to the interview. And for me, I made a choice on a career of advertising simply, purely at half the money that I could wear jeans to work. And, and fast forward 20 years at Mullen Lowe across six or seven different countries, Eventually, when I left, again, I I decided on the spur of the moment to join a PR agency called Edelman. That choice was, again, not a planned one. And the last piece of the puzzle in my mind was a doll. I had pretty much signed on. I pretty much signed on to join another agency network when an ex-client of mine, and he was far more convinced than I was, that I needed to come over as his global CMO. 
since none of this was planned, when I look back at it, saying, so what got me to where it's got me? It is those moments where suddenly you had a, great, I got this. Or, of course, I can live in Beirut. Or, why would I want to live in London when I could live in Thailand? Or, Unilever wants to hand over its detergent business to BBH? No way, we're going to win it. And we did. And, and when I add all of this up, obviously, completely in retrospect, the moments that gave me sheer, unadulterated oxygen for the soul, decoding these moments, I can, actually, I can actually say this, and I do say this to everybody that asks me, saying, choose your career based on moments of oxygen. Not on the title, not on peer group uh, admiration, not on what it looks like on LinkedIn. Uh, choose your moments. Based on, because when you connect the dots, you can suddenly see, whoa, that's an elephant. I think it looks like Lord Ganesha. Oh, that, that's my calling. How do you know it gives you oxygen for your soul in advance? You don't. And how, how, are, how are you self-aware enough to know that? You don't. you don't. You don't know what gives you oxygen in advance ever. But what you do know is what takes away oxygen in every past moment and what to avoid. And I think by just avoiding situations, people, challenges, leadership that sap away oxygen uh, is probably a better way to pan out your career rather than trying to uh, crystal, uh, crystal gaze. Now that Choice, I'm going to go back to early in your career, that choice to take the job with half the money so you could wear denim. I'm sure that was part of it. But what, what else was it about that offer? And what lesson is there in that for young people listening? Was it the person who interviewed you, the kind of work you imagined yourself doing in the denim? What was it? What's the lesson behind it or the principle behind it? So over, over the years, what I've, what I've figured is my personal purpose is around the areas of taking on impossible things and transforming them in a non-conventional manner. But this is again in hindsight. And when I connected to that moment in, I think, 1995, Somewhere, the ability to wear denim or the ability not to wear a tie and a jacket and look spick and amazing every day is, is around the areas of being unconventional, is around the areas of not caring how you look, but caring much more about what you do. Now, denim is, as I did my homework on you, it's an important theme <laughs> in your career. So I, I just want to ask you now, are you wearing denim now? Yes, the shirt. This shirt is, <laughs> is a denim shirt. Yes. I want to return to that decision you made to join advertising versus consulting or accounting. You spent 24 years in advertising at a great firm and you went to a great public relations firm. Then you flipped to the client side at a very senior level, global chief marketing, global chief marketing officer. That is so rarely done. In fact, I could not even think of someone 
who I know has done that, I don't know if you can, people typically, they move from the agency world to the client world, typically not at the CMO level. So this is, I don't know if you can think of anyone, I can't. So I want to ask you, why did you do that? How did you land that job? And how did you make that huge adjustment apparently successfully? So we could probably talk for the rest of the podcast around these, but why, how, and and give us tell us the story. So this is much less to do with my planning and my ability than my boss's ability to want me. And over a period of three months of discussion, con me into joining. Okay, and let me get let me get into this. I mean, Pierre Luigi used to be on the Unilever board uh, uh, globally. After doing the Unilever board job, he was running Southeast Asia, and I met him socially. And for the period of six or seven years, we knew each other socially, where we would discuss our work, our perspectives on work, our perspective on brands. Uh, and and he, he was deciding between two roles, one of which was dope. Like you do when somebody asks you for advice and there is alcohol involved, you tend to give a lot of advice. So, so I spent an evening painting out a picture of what he could make to. Okay, take a 170-year-old company, amazing brand, amazing brand. I mean, one of the best products you could get into, which is the goodness of the earth. You know, you don't have to make much. Mother Earth makes it. You just got to bring it in its most natural pristine, pure form that you can. And, and two, two and a half years ago, talking about a potential health, wellness company, all built around the goodness of earth, was, was something you do when you are fourth drink down and fifth drink down. And you don't, what you don't know is the next morning you get a call and says, I'm convinced between the two roles, but you're coming and we're going to do this together. So he was at a different company. He went to be global CEO of Dole and he'd said, you come with me. And it took us three months of chats after that, where your natural fears kick in, saying, no, I'm not sure I want to sell fruit. You know, I'm used to selling deodorants and detergents and bangs cars and all the sorts of stuff people don't need but you know they're sexier and they're they're more attractive and and i'm not sure i want to do fruit or i'm not sure i just want to do fruit because in an advertising agency or at a pr firm you work on 20 brands and there was this there's width of diversity and there's excitement and you can match the good and the bad and so i found all the reasons that I shouldn't be doing this. He was unwavering in his resilience and his belief. And like everything else in life, there came a moment where he said, you know what? If we can make this company everything we've dreamt it can be, let's do this. And the rest, like you're saying, uh, it looks good in the last two years we've had. We realized that there are about 50 more. It's in one of those infinite journeys we're on. But so far, 
I'm eternally grateful for his belief rather than any of my ability to plan. This boss, Pierre Luigi, sounds like a pretty remarkable human being. And you followed him to Dole. You're grateful for that. You're obviously you're a great team. What is it about him that I, I realize he was persistent? But what is it about him that was a friend to you and then you decided to make it a professional relationship? You know, what is special about him? What is his gift? I think it's a combination of two things that, that he and I share. And, and, and one of them is delusion. So it, there is a bit of Don Quixote and a bit of chasing windmills and windmills that matter. And then there is a bit of humility knowing that no matter what we achieve, it is going to be a speck or, or, or a drop in, in what we really want to achieve. And that combination, and, and, and you can imagine if there are two like-minded people, it's not like every day we agree on everything or I think eight times out of 10, we disagree and are passionate about it. But the shared purpose of what we believe we can, we, we can, the impact we can achieve far outweighs, far outweighs uh, anything else along the journey. The second most amazing thing about the boss is I think he, his, he starts by accepting that he doesn't understand marketing as well as I do. And that is very important for a lot of us as CMOs. Because I think a lot of reason marketing is a bit bastardized in the system, if I may, I may use that word, is because everybody believes they know how to do this. And probably they do, but not everybody. Marketing is bastardized at a lot of companies. I agree with that. And I would like to take, get, take you there now at Dole. What have you done in the last two years to build the muscle at Dole? I'm sure they were doing some very fine things when you came. But when you think about building a marketing function, and you had a chance to do that because you were coming in new with a new CEO, where did you start? What did, what, what did you say, this is what marketing should be at Dole? What are, what, what are the skills, capabilities, competencies that you and your team worked on? So I, I listened for the first three months because when you join a company of 170 years, there is so much joy, goodness, richness in the legacy, in the history. Uh, that somewhere in those listening, we were able to find the purpose of Dole. And it was there in the history. It's not something we've discovered out of thin air. For 170 years, this company began with very missionary approach and therefore always had social fences, social good uh, at the heart of everything that they did. Except it was as a CSR tab with a few people uh, somewhere on the sidelines of the organization. And the first thing we did is we said, look, if we have to succeed in transforming the company, purpose needs to become our business model. So we put purpose from the side right at the heart of the entire organization, which meant it changed the way we were to innovate. It changed the way we are structured. It changed the way 
business performance gets measured, how people get incentivized. And we have started this journey. We're two years into this journey. When it comes, when it comes to the marketing department, the two currencies we began our work on were attention and trust. And I think increasingly, these are the two currencies that most brands uh, need to be looking at. We live in a world where 76% of the brands could just disappear tomorrow and nobody would care. It's a stat from WFA's research about a couple of years ago. That means only 24% of what we're doing is having some impact. Now you put the fact that about 70% of all content gets a left swipe, metaphorically. So there's a lot of garbage in and garbage out that is, and, and, and then therefore we started creating a mindset around progress, not motion. Mapping the consumer's journey and therefore building expertise around connected commerce at one end. So social meets uh, digital commerce and building new capabilities around how do we gain the consumer's attention and the consumer's trust. Now, in the last two years, we've had some fantastic leaders. So I have Arsha is the VP in North America, and she's amazing. I have JC in North America, and he's amazing. I have Jamie. So we're starting to build leadership which will ensure that tomorrow, if and when I do get hit by a bus, beyond the customary 30 seconds of we miss him, they'll be doing even better, bolder, and more amazing things. Attention and trust, big concepts. And you also said that you, you emphasize progress, not motion. Speak more about emphasizing progress, not motion. I'm, I'm going to go back in my history. And, and, and when you work at an agency like Lintas, which evolves to Mullen Low, Unilever tends to be a large part of the portfolio that most people work on. And my observation over the 24 years I was there is we started breeding Unilovers. We started breeding within the agency world people who spoke Unilever language better, more successfully, more consistently than Unilever managers themselves. I mean, Unilever managers would come, spend two or three years, move on to the next gig. We would have people that spent decades or multiple decades. I mean, I remember, I remember the person who ran it, the pride of 30 years of speaking that language is probably misplaced. Because you are never able to get out of the same thing again and again and again. And I think we are increasingly growing marketeers who are amazing at the ability to say no. They all have the power to say no. They can tell you a thousand reasons why something won't work. And what that gives us is the 2% incremental, which is good for some companies which is great for some companies. But if you're in the business of impact at scale, then that kind of motion, that kind of wrongly placed consistency, that kind of uni lovers breeding 
is is something I'm very keen we avoid at at all. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. I want to go back to your role as CMO. Uh, you have this good team. You've galvanized around attention and trust and the purpose, which is not easy to do. So we may go there. But I want you to talk about your work. What do you do as a CMO, global CMO of Dole? And how has that evolved in the two years since you joined with Pierre Luigi? What do I do? Isn't that an interesting question, right? Uh, it's, it's a combination of trying to be a orchestrator of some amazing, diverse symphonies. It's chief cheerleading officer. It's a chief business growth officer. It's proving that, uh, proving that attention does translate into sales, sometimes not having all the metrics that you need. It's a combination of resisting the mediocre, even though you may be out of time. It is the, I mean, it's a combination, but the one, the one thing I do, the one thing I do is I, every day I try and make sure that the impact we have as a company has a much larger perspective than short-term profit. So I see my role as galvanizing ourselves, our partners, every associated door, every leader that may not believe in it as much as I do, saying we're here, we're in the business of prosperity for people, we're in the business of prosperity for the planet, we're in the business of prosperity for our stakeholders, and in that, the shareholders come as a consequence, as a subset, but not as the be-all and end-all of everything we do. Where is the unadulterated joy or oxygen for you in this role? So today, and I'm just going to focus on today. Today, we announced the launch of a non-fungible token, uh, which is auctioning on May the 6th. So here's where some of that delusion, some of the Don Quixote's chasing of the windmills come. So about six to eight weeks ago, we were watching people being sold for $69 million. Uh, we're, we're, we're seeing all of this and saying, what do we do with this? There's this amazing technology, some of which we understand, some of which I am still mm-hmm. trying to figure and here is this purpose of Dole, which is we want to bring equality uh, around nutrition and access to good nutrition. Like we want to bring sunshine for all. So how do I take this purpose? How do I take a technology that seems interesting? I understand, we understand half of it. And lo and behold, we came across David Datuna. 
So about two years ago at Art Basel, Art Basel, Maurizio Catalan created a banana tape to the wall and four people bought it at $120,000. David Datuna as performance art went and ate the banana and came to be known to the world as the hungry artist. So we get in touch with David Datuna saying, we have this purpose. We want to bring impact to the world. Are you willing to come along this journey with us, hungry artists, so that together we can actually see what funds we can create to help programs that bring nutrition inequality, that bring nutrition equality to the world? We bought in the third superpower, which is the Boys and Girls Club of America. And do you have a digital wallet? Yes. We are the, one of the few NGOs who has a digital wallet because we're going to sell stuff in Ethereum and, and, and donate it in Ethereum. All of the things combined, a fantastic team who's been educating me along the way has led to an announcement of a new NFT series of art designed by David Datuna, the hungry artist. They'll try and bring sunshine to all. And that gets auctioned on the 6th of May at Rarible. So obviously, I know you're going to put that in your diary, Jim, because you will. It's the day after my birthday. So I'll, I'll suggest that to my wife. I want a, a non-fungible token on this amazing artwork to help with hunger equality. Come on. Look, which person in the world doesn't want a non-fungible token of a pineapple or a banana? Or an avocado. I mean, it's 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 a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer for me. I think you will be amazed <laughs> at the money you will raise. I am. My fingers are crossed. So the last three days, I've been trying to get in touch with Metacoven. So Vignesh Sundaration, and I hope I pronounced the name correctly. I don't want to muck that one up. Uh, was the gentleman who, with his partner Anand, bought people at $69 million mm -hmm. and happened to live in Singapore. Oh. Now, obviously, they operate in a slightly different ecosystem than probably you and I do with Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. And... But eventually, some of our sleuthing techniques got through and they've shown interest. So we've got, for you. we've got a response back saying, this is interesting. Tell us more. So our ambition is, how do I get to Jeff Bezos? How do I get to the Gates Foundation? How do I get to King Albert of Monaco or Mark Cuban or, or anybody who's into crypto? Uh, and crypto in a big way and convince them that there isn't a better buy than feeding a hungry child. Because as you and I know it, the pandemic has left havoc in terms of the amount of children that are going to go hungry pre and, and, and currently in the pandemic. So for our listeners, if you're a little bit confused about NFTs or non-fungible tokens, just go to Google and Google non-fungible tokens, digital art, $70 million, you'll get all the background. But there was a lot of news around that piece of artwork that went for $70 million. And, uh, and, and, and it's gone on from there, of course. So there's a lot of interesting, we don't, none of us understand it, but it's a real thing. It's a real At thing. At $70 million, uh, and, dollars, and, and, it's, it's very real. It's very and you're real. throwing and yourself into culture. You're throwing yourself into innovation. So tell us a little bit after that nice story why that 
gives you oxygen? Because it's the best combination of creativity, technology, and shared purpose between a lot of people, a lot of companies, a lot of uh, partners. And I think that is the way we are going to succeed. That's marketing. Yes, that is. So is, there, is your job all unadulterated joy or is sometimes no? Oh, oh, it's never. So I think we would be, we would be lying if anyone on this planet claimed that their life or their job was 100% unadulterated joy. The ambition should always be a ratio that beats 50-50 and tops it to 51 at the barest minimum. And what I can tell you with, on, with complete confidence is, is it is lopsided towards the sh- oxygen it is lopsided towards the impact we are trying to bring, but the like-mindedness and the shared purpose of the entire leadership team. It is also a journey of luck because, you know, if I was selling sugary water for a living, life is already a bit difficult as I try and bring prosperity to people and the planet. So I'm lucky to be working into a product that is purposeful by itself. I'm, work, I'm lucky to be working with a leadership team that is purposeful and a bit Don Quixotic. And, and it's, 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 it's a good fun. It's a good fun to be, to be chasing those windmills. I agree with that. Now, we've danced around your purpose about 10 times so far in this podcast. So I want to go right into it right now. And I want to talk about this because it is so full of lessons. And I want our listeners to go to your website and just scroll through it. Because the sequence in which you talk about your purpose is beautiful, and there's lots of lessons in that. First of all, when you go to your site, it's, it's bright and sunny, which is the <laughs> metaphor you get right away. Yes. But then you sequence, you, you say what your purpose is, you show your purpose in action, you show your partners in your purpose, and you just talked about a new one, the artist, and you state your six promises based on your purpose. That's the sequence. Beautifully done. Impressive. So I want you to talk us through how you did that as a leader with your team. And, and, and I think you should start with saying what your purpose is. I mean, you have dropped it in the podcast, but speak a bit more about what that is, how you talk about it. But then how you develop that construct, which is so coherent, so impressive, so aspirational. So tell us your lessons in building that and in activating it. We look at the world today and realize that depending on where you're born, what gender you're born in, what socioeconomic reality you're born in, your journey of nutrition inequality begins even before you're born. And that shouldn't be the case. We refuse a world where good nutrition, just like sunshine, selects who it shines on. So our rallying cry is sunshine for all, good nutrition as a human right. And, and, and the moment you dwell a bit deeper into it, we realize that it is bad, unhealthy food is far more attractive, is far more available, 
is far more affordable, is far more accessible. And there are two sides of the people that have access to nutrition. There are 2 billion people in the world that are starving, but there are another 2 billion people who are dealing with either obesity or the impact of bad food. So about 60, 60-odd percent of the world is dealing with malnutrition and everybody needs sunshine for all. There are three principles that we've tried to bring this to the world. One is the humility that we cannot do this on our own and therefore every partner that can bring a superpower that makes ours exponential is welcome. We actually even launched a fund to be able to fund those NGOs, that one person idea, those five people idea or a large company idea that would help us propel this purpose to larger impact. So one is the entire spirit of ecosystem rather than trying to do this on our own. The second belief is, and we say this internally as acts, not ads. So we're yet to make a three-minute mushy-gushy film about our intent, and that's been by choice. So what we are trying to do is through each of the actions, whether it is the work you might have seen on malnutrition labels, where we projected nutritional labels around the cities in the U.S., whether it is the work we've just talked about, which is the NFTs, whether it is the work we're doing with the mayor of Jackson in Mississippi, one of the most unequal cities in the U.S., because we want to try and bring a systemic answer to the challenge which has been equally systemically created. So apart from partners, actions, the third and probably the most important belief is that change needs to begin at home. So we first began our own journey on the purpose with launching six promises about how Dole would change over the next couple of years, whether it was in terms of the plastic, zero fossil abuse plastic, whether it is in terms of never adding sugar to the fruit, whether it is in terms of increasing access to a billion people around the world and more. And what this does is this forces a certain change within ourselves as a business, combined with partners who can bring that change into actions and not advertising. And that's, those are the three principles that the website is actually listing down uh, as, as the way we want, to, we want to go on this journey. So here's the question. Fabulous purpose, fabulous coherence, big, big Don Quixote ideas. Are you seeing it in the business? Are you seeing people notice? Are you seeing it impact consumers, your retail customers, distributors? Have you seen that link? Yes, without a doubt. We're seeing it in the new talent that wants to join us. Most of our leadership has joined us because of its, our purpose. We're seeing it in the re-energizing of people that have been there for the last decade, 20 years. And there are quite a, quite a lot of that. And, and we're so grateful for that. 
We're seeing this in the amount of calls we are getting in new customers wanting to partner with us. We're seeing this in our results. And while I say this, obviously, the last year is, is a year where people have rediscovered the joy of fruit. So while I would love to take all credit for some of the sales we've been seeing, I'd be using numbers to justify something beyond a certain point in time. So we're definitely seeing the energy. We're also seeing that a lot of, a lot of these individual dots are joining because they realize this is an infinite game. This is a game where there will never come a moment, and I hope there is, but there'll never come a moment where we are able to say, job done. And that challenge gives, and I'm sorry, we've been talking about oxygen quite a few times, so I'm going to use it again, and I apologize in advance. But the amount of oxygen it's giving a 170-year-old company to become a 170-year-old startup is, is quite contagious. Tell me this, what is the biggest change in the culture? I mean, I think you've alluded to this, but I want you to say it specifically. The biggest change in the culture since you've embarked on this uh, purpose journey and it now is told so beautifully on your website, what's the biggest change you see in the dull culture? It's the belief, it's the belief that we can create impact at scale, which is far beyond the next period's financials. And, and we underestimate, we underestimate, and I'm going to use oxygen again, I apologize, but we underestimate the, the amount of oxygen this can give to a organization. Well, oxygen and denim are two themes, so we'll keep that <laughs> going. You, go. I, you, 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 sp you spoke earlier about how, you, how you, this has impacted your performance assessments, your compensation, your incentives. That's an area that so many leaders on the purpose journey wrestle with. Could you give any insights in how you set that up, what you've learned, what has worked, what is not working so well? Historically, we've always... Majority of people's incentives were tied to the company's financial performance. And, and we began a journey where, while obviously financial performance is a large and an important part of it, we are a for-profit organization. The money we make allows us to do the stuff we want to do. And there is no denying that. In fact, it is one of our promises out of the six. We will increase prosperity. The other five promises are what we are now increasing the weightage of how our people get measured. So the journey of how we move away from plastic, the journey of how we move to carbon neutrality, the journey of how we move away from zero processed sugar, the journey of how we increase access on good nutrition. Those are some of the measures uh, that are being added on to people's performance. We're increasingly moving to work in mission-based teams in a very agile manner rather than the archetypical bureaucratic matrixed organizations uh, and the ability to change from the matrix to a mission-based team is another thing that we're added on in the way people are measured 
and people get incentivized or recognized. What I can also tell you is it isn't easy. The immunity of a system needs to be challenged on a daily basis. Sometimes it is convincing, sometimes it is cajoling, sometimes it's putting your foot down like my five-year-old does and throwing a bit of a tantrum. But all done, all done for the change we seek is, is pretty validated. What leadership uh, lesson did you learn in aligning this organization globally around this common purpose, shared purpose, change in how you do business? If you don't ask, the answer is always no. So if you don't ask of change for every human being, if you don't ask for impact, if you don't ask for a larger purpose, if you don't ask whether it is for yourself, and look, I'm, I'm, I'm 50 years old. And I mean, even though this is a podcast, whichever, if you were to see me, you'd go, yeah, obviously, you, look, you don't look a day over 50. <laughs> at 50, at where most of us are in our career, we can have the ability to fail, but that fail has to be glorious. It has to be big. It has to be at scale. And therefore, the ability to ask for forgiveness, to fail gloriously on a mission that is worth failing on, is, is, is something that is, we're developing this. It's not like we were born with this. It's not like we know how to do this. It's, it's, it's not like there is a book for it. The Years was a great book, and that was one of the books that started us on this journey. And I must mention that. Thank you, Repen. I use your charts till date. The S&P parallel is something I continue to use every day. But the biggest leadership lesson is, look, it's, let's fail big. Let's fail gloriously. Let's fail in trying to change the things that will matter for your and my children. Because the world they're heading to is quite, uh, I can't swear, can I? So it's quite fished up. Yeah. This is so good. I want to cre create uh, time for the creative brief section at the end of this podcast where we sort of do a creative brief on you, looking for insights and uh, perspectives on many, many different issues. And it's my favorite part. And the first one I want to ask is, what's the biggest misconception about Dole or misunderstanding about Dole? That we are a fruit company. And it isn't a misconception, and I'm trying to probably be a bit clever about it, but we'll go with that. Uh, attempt, uh, we are a fruit company, a proud fruit company, but we are one of the world's best nutrition in its most unadulterated, purest form. And, and that is what we were trying to change. You have had lots and lots of side hustles in your career. The Shed 28, Institute for Public Relations, the Bayer Creative Council, Female Founders. I want to understand what guides you in these choices and what's your current major side hustle? Uh, the two major side hustle is the Shed uh, and, and, and the Bayer Creative Council. Uh, wherever I can spend my energy on either helping 
creativity get a better shot at achieving the impact it can? Or if I can spend any time in bettering the world we live in in terms of gender equality? Look, I, I, come, from, I come from a country which its history sometimes needs to apologize for the way we've treated women. I grew up in a house for a very strong mother. Uh, I had a very strong sister. I'm married to an extremely strong woman, and we're together we're trying to grow two amazingly strong girls. And I can't believe that we're in 2021 and still talking about gender equality or how we're going to get that or the amount of years it's going to take us to get there. So if I can spend any hour of my day trying to make it slightly faster, better, easier, that's probably time well spent. So the favorite ad campaign or marketing campaign or PR campaign that you've been associated with? So Dirt is Good is a, has been a big part of my life. Uh, I was not part of the team that created the idea. Which is a Unilever campaign, mostly outside Unilever the U.S. It's a campaign. It's a, it's a four-plus billion-dollar conglomeration of brands at Unilever, which are all sold under a large idea called Dirt is Good. I was not part of the team that built the idea. And as happens with such large ideas, I joined at a time where it had done extremely well in one country and the rest of the world was having enough reasons why it would never work around the world. And just like every good idea needs its wings, it needs its landing gear. And I led that business globally across 80 countries, partnering Unilever to take that idea across those 80 different countries and building the landing gear for that global idea. Alini Santos was my partner in crime. Uh, I adore her. Uh, she is one of my mentors and will always continue to be. Uh, I adore her craziness, her mad Brazilian uh, self. But the brand that I think I adore even more, though, I mean, just Dirt is Good is something because I was a part of it. The brand I think I love and the work I love is Nike, if you let me play. When it, there is something magical, obviously, in a lot of work that Nike has done. But there is something so poignant in the work on If You Let Me Play. And this piece only has statistics of if we let girls play, here is what amazing things come out. And for all of you who are, who are listening, who haven't seen it, my one request, don't listen to me. Uh, fast forward my podcast, but go and spend those 30 or 45 seconds watching If You Let Me Play. Yeah, I agree. That's time very well spent. So Don Quixote is an inspiration for you. You've mentioned that before. I've seen that in lots and lots of your writing over the past years. When did that start? Oh, it's, I think about 20, 20, 20 plus years ago. 20 plus years ago. So I think it was a combination of starting from Richard Bach and Jonathan Livingston Siegel to then realizing that that was a bit too mushy for me to get inspired on and then discovering 
Cervantes and, 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 and the works of Don Quixote. Did you discover it in reading or movie or? I discovered it by reading. By reading. Uh, I was then, I, I, I used to have a boss, Peter Atkinson, who would spend evenings. We would be on travels together. At that point in time, I was, I was looking after Africa, Middle East, living out of Dubai, and then subsequently Beirut. So Peter and I would spend four or five days in Egypt or Casablanca or Tunis or, or, or Istanbul in a hotel. Uh, and we would talk about it. And this used to be one of his favorite books. And while I had heard the story, what it meant and what it could do for me, something I owed Peter uh, a lot for. I think we have to wrap this up. I could go another hour or two, but it's midnight for you and you're, you've been wonderful to stay up late for us. I, I want to give the last word to you. Uh, anything you want to ask me or anything we haven't talked about that you'd like to share with our listeners? So you've, look, you've had one of the most amazing careers and I think I saw one of the biggest transformations at Proctor as an outsider uh, during your time. And, 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 and Mark has only deepened and widened it with the work he's doing on diversity. Given, this, given the journey we're on at Dole, if you had to tell me, here are the three things you should never do, Ruben, what would those three things be? The first one, and you already referred to this, is don't accept mediocrity. My first day as CMO at P&G, and, and, and in some ways I was fortunate because I came in when the company was not healthy. And people are a bit more open to change when a company is, is not doing as well. And I rallied every marketing person on a conference call the morning I was announced and said to them, I don't have the answers, but I do know we all joined this company to be the best and to set the standards for marketing and to be number one and to not just innovate for us, but innovate for the industry. And we're not doing that. So, and it's our responsibility, not someone else's. So bring it on, please send me your ideas. Where's your energy? Where's your oxygen? What do you want to get involved with? All I had to do after that 45 minute conference call was, was synthesize what came in, focus it, tap into the energy and our standards changed and it came from the people. So I think the first one is don't accept mediocrity. Our role is to, is to keep our standards high and expect that of others and help them get there. I think the second one is what I just referred to is it's all about the people and the purpose. Yes. Yeah, through that journey, we refined the purpose of the company, the brands, and we unleashed our people to, to bring it to life. And I think the last one is, uh, and you refer to this, you know, it really is about the work. At that time, P&G's people were not doing marketing work. They were doing project management. So we said, if we want to live our purpose, you have to do different things. You have to be more emotive, more curious, more inventive, more bold. And, and my role as a leader was to reward that, protect it, and make some symbolic decisions to show that we meant it. And what an amazing legacy to leave behind. I mean, so you, you must be so proud, and I am so proud to have spent an hour 
with with you. So thank you. You're too kind. You're too kind, Rupen. This has been wonderful. And I think I might get that NFT for my birthday from my wife. Although yes, you may be pricing yes, a bit yes. out of my price range, Rupen. We'll see how that goes. It's an auction. We can still have fun. It's an auction. Every time it's I raise auction. my bid, it helps your purpose. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rupen. That was my conversation with Rupin Desai. Three takeaways for this one for your life and work, and these are three big ones. First one is look for oxygen in your work and in your life. He kept referring to this metaphor that he gets oxygen from certain people, certain types of work, and that has guided him through his career. You never know when you're going to find the oxygen, but be self-aware enough to know when you're finding it and try to keep that going in your life and your work. Second lesson, attention and trust. That's what marketing's about. When I asked him about the capabilities he's building at Dole, he said it's all about attention and trust. If you gain attention and you gain trust, you will build a brand. And he talked about linking attention and trust to his sales figures. Rupen dimensionalized the importance of attention and trust, leveraging a study that was done that showed that 76% of the people in this world would not care if most brands disappeared. So if you're not gaining trust, you're not getting attention, you really can't get off the ground. Third lesson on this one, purpose. This is about as big and high impact a purpose story as we have heard. And the way this company and this leader has gone about building the purpose, activating it, measuring it is a classic. He talked about the impact of a company goes way beyond the short-term profits, but it results in sales and profit. He believes And he shows that the impact of a company goes beyond short-term profits. But the result of a great purpose activated is, in fact, short and long-term sales and profits. Big themes from this one. Oxygen, purpose, attention, trust, and don't forget, denim. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.